and tonight we're looking particularly about what it means for a woman to lead and we're talking about it because you know, Matt gave me the freedom to sort of choose what subject to cover tonight and I still see this area as there being so much uncertainty around it and I see that for lots of us particularly us as women on the one hand we feel very like in our culture um, there's a lot of empowerment and of course we could lead of course what 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 nonsense to even think that we couldn't and yet what we see sometimes in the bible causes an instability in us or other people come at us and say something like no women need to be quiet women need to not, you know it's okay for women to serve in certain places but leadership is out or speaking is out and what happens then is we feel that uncertainty and it causes an instability and particularly as we're trying sometimes to step into roles of leadership the uncertainty is no good for us um, and it's a bit like several years ago I wanted some good chunky winter boots and I really knew in my head what I wanted so I went looking on eBay and I found the exact thing that I wanted and they came and they were great um, but the first time I wore them out and I tend to hurry everywhere I'm nearly always late um, and I was hurrying on the school run and I suddenly noticed like as I was walking I was trying to go fast but my foot kept slipping underneath me and so I was ending up having to walk really tentatively and when I got home I took the boots off and I looked and their soles were completely flat no um they were smooth and so there was no grip and I wasn't sure what to do about it and I looked on the internet and I found that if I'd lived in America there was a, a spray can that I could buy called something like good soul grip or you know something like that but it didn't exist in this country and so in the end google came to my rescue and i got a really sharp pair of scissors and i gouged into the the sole of my boots crisscross patterns to kind of give this sense of grip so that i could then walk comfortably fast and stably again and that really is what i'm wanting to give you guys tonight that there is no quick soul grip we don't have a spray what we have to do is the hard work of putting in some grips so that when it comes to women in leadership we're not just like going along and then suddenly feeling like the ground comes out from underneath us but we're so rooted and comfortable in scripture that we feel able to run and if you haven't already heard negative comments or had people kind of undermine a position of women in leadership, it is coming, unfortunately. You will sooner or later, you will get it. And that can be hard, it can hurt, it can be destabilizing. And I think sometimes, even as women, we even take the fact that it destabilizes us as a lack of authority on our part. Like if I was really called to leadership, I wouldn't be like, um, bothered by this um, opposition. My boss here, um, Mike Pilavachi, some of you will know if you've been in around Solstice for a while, but he is uh, of Greek heritage and he's lived in England nearly his whole life, but and he has been leading for more than 30 years. And he said the other week, and I found this so helpful, he said if he was in a room of people who all believed that Greek people shouldn't lead churches, he said that would totally affect my leadership. And this is someone that has been leading, as I say, for over 30 years. And I found that so helpful that when he removed it from being about gender and instead talked about it in terms of race, suddenly I could see that it wasn't my weakness that meant that sometimes I can be destabilized by other people's opinions. 
It's not because I'm a woman that I can be destabilized by that. And it's not because my leadership is inherently wrong. It's because we are humans and the opinions of other people affect us, particularly when they're strong. And what I need to do and what you need to do, and I'm giving this a longer intro than I really should, is we've got to come to a place of security. And that security comes from the Bible, not from how we're feeling. And that is what I'm aiming to do tonight. I want to say as well, as we come in to look at some, some of uh, the things that we're going to be looking at tonight, is that language really matters. And that is not a cop out. So do you have the phrase in Australia, I should know this, do you have the phrase raining cats and dogs? Yeah, okay. So if I said to you right now, it's raining cats and dogs here, you wouldn't expect to go outside and literally see cats and dogs falling from the sky. You would understand that that is a phrase and it means something very different. It means it's raining really heavily. And so that's not a cop out. That's explaining that every culture and every language, even the fact that I had to check with you, even though we all speak English, like, do you have that phrase? Is that we can't make assumptions about language sometimes. We have to understand that language has a culture and a context. And some of the work that we're going to be doing tonight, we're going to need to come back to that. But now let's launch in and let's go to the very beginning to the book of Genesis. And always it's a good thing to go back to the beginning. If we're wrestling with issues, go back to what things looked like before sin uh, came in and, and messed things up. And we go back to this place of perfection and looking at Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God says this, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild creatures and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so what we see here is that God creates human beings and he says to them both, he creates male and female, and he says to them, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the earth. And that command is given to both men and women. Fill the earth, that's about multiplication, that's about family, community. And then reign over the rest of creation. That job of leadership was given to men and to women. And that we have to be really clear on that. And then what happens? So that's in the perfection of creation. But then what we need to do is um, just have a kind of zone in for a moment on the specifically on the creation of Eve, because this is where even right at the beginning, some of the instability begins to um, creep in. So we go forward in Genesis, but sort of backwards in the creation story. So we're starting at Genesis 2 verse 20. And it says this for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the footplace with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
So this is the story of how Adam and Eve were created. Now, when you see the word Adam there, initially that's not a name. Adam, literally Adam, means human being. And so initially what you've got is a human being. And then what happens is this recognition that they've gone through the process of pairing up the animals and Adam notices that there's no suitable helper for him. This word helper, we immediately assume, um, sometimes we can assume, oh gosh, is that what I'm meant to be as a woman is my basic role in life to kind of assist a man and kind of come behind him and be like oh what are you called to in life how might I make that easier for you could I make a cup of tea could I do your laundry you know and that because that's what this word helper kind of conjures up but this word helper it's the word in Hebrew is Eza, and it is a really powerful word, word actually. It's used here of Eve. The other times in the Old Testament it's used is of God. And particularly we see it in the book of Psalms when, um, you know, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? That word help there again is Eza. And of course, the answer to that is where does my help come from? It comes from God. God is not inferior to Israel. He is not a helper in the sense of, oh, here I am. You know, I would just love to help you out in your mission. He is strong. He is powerful. Israel look to God as their helper because they know that they need him. And I'm not saying, therefore, that women are like God and that men are like lowly Israel. But you see how we've turned a word on its head and made it inferior. But how can that be true when it's applied to God himself? And some people say, well, here's the natural order. You've got Adam first and kind of Eve is a bit of an afterthought. You know, Adam first, therefore, he must be the, the priority or the more prominent one. And Eve is kind of like this afterthought. And yet, if you look at the story of creation, you see that it builds it builds in kind of scale and beauty and intricacy. So it starts off very simply with like land and sea and light and dark, and which is, that in itself is pretty stunning. And then in comes the detail and the color and human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. It, we, were, we were created last as the thing that just God said, this is very good. And so, and I don't believe this, but what you could say, if you're looking at the created order, therefore Eve is top of the pile, not bottom. Now, I don't actually think we're meant to go that far, but the idea that because Adam was created first makes him kind of the dominant leader and woman, the afterthought, we do not see that in uh, the created order. And then also this beautiful um, idea that Eve has taken from the, the rib of Adam, and I've loved this little um, kind of saying that comes from that, where they say Eve was taken from the rib of Adam, not from the foot that he would, you know, rule over her, not from the head that she would rule over him, but from the side, that the rib, that they would stand side by side. And there is something really beautiful in helping us understand this is the picture that God uh, names in that first uh, passage of Genesis that we read, that this is about harmony. This is about interdependence. This is together reigning, ruling and filling the earth. And it's a beautiful mutual mutuality that is mirrored even in that passage that I read where it says uh, it starts off. God said, let us 
make mankind, by the way, that is human being, not maleness. Let us make human beings in our own image out of the community of the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They created the community of human beings. And uh, that, that harmony that was so beautiful at the beginning, you know, it says that the man and wife, they were naked and they felt no shame. You think how much of our being, of our leadership, of our relationships are affected by disharmony and are affected by shame. And if we go right back to the beginning and imagine human beings, they stood side by side and that those relationships were unsullied by any kind of comparison or dominance or yeah or shame but into that harmony came sin and we know what happened we know that um that they chose to eat the fruit of the tree that they'd been told not to and in that moment in choosing for themselves everything got screwed up and so into this beautiful harmony and intimacy and this by the way that harmony and intimacy was between god and human beings it was between human beings and it was between human beings and creation perfect harmony in all of those uh, alignments suddenly all of those three things were affected by sin and what happens when sin comes in is that God then has to tell them the consequences and I imagine that would have been a really hard conversation um I know that for me when I have to say to my kids okay because you did that unfortunately screen time is now being cut or we're now not going to do that special thing there is a consequence to what you have done and as a parent and God is obviously the ultimate the best parent spelling out consequences wouldn't have been a fun conversation but necessary and and this is not about him sometimes we read this as like um he's kind of speaking over them what he wants to happen he's just saying now that you've done that this is the way things are and so he says in Genesis 3, 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. I just need to tell you that that is true. Um, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What's really interesting about this is naturally when we hear the word desire, we think sexual desire. And so it's like God saying, you know, you're going to sexually desire your husband. Only what we understand is that that isn't particular to women. And often, actually, culturally, we see that men, there's sometimes even a higher sexual desire. So it can't be about that. What's interesting is this word um, desire there. It actually um, means to master and dominate. And we're going to see it if we were going to carry on reading Genesis uh, in Genesis chapter four. So going forward a little bit, you've got the story of Cain and Abel. And if you don't know the story, they're the sons of Adam and Eve. And there's competition, particularly from Cain um, towards Abel. And um, Cain starts to hate Abel. And God says to him, this is in uh, Genesis four, verse seven. You can look it up later. He says this. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will it not? Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right. Now, this is the key bit that I want you to listen to. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
that word desire. So God is saying, Cain, be careful. Sin is desiring you, not sexually, but sin is going to try and master you and dominate you, but you need to rule over sin. And that's exactly the same phrase as when, when uh, God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. So you're going to want to dominate him and master him. But what God says is he's going to rule over you. And what we see then is the consequence of the fall. Now, instead of this co-interdependence, uh, this harmony and intimacy, suddenly she wants this, he wants that. She wants to subjugate, he wants to subjugate. And we know, we see it throughout history in every culture, men dominating and ruling over physically they're bigger. And yet this is what came in with the fall. Just so you know, just because it came in doesn't mean we have to put our hands in the air and say, well, that's the way it is then. I mean, part of our longing as Christians is to see the kingdom of God established um, and, and to see some of that harmony restored. Anyway, from that moment on, things were ruined and blighted, if you like, between us and God, us and other humans and us and creation. And we live in uh, the outworking of that. And yet what we see in the Old Testament and the rest of the Old Testament, you know, I'm not going to lie, it's tough. There are bits of it that are really tough to read as a woman. And the consequence of this fallenness, we see it played out in the culture that the New Testament was part of and in the other cultures for that matter it's not this is not just a god's people problem this is an all people problem and yet if you look carefully and i remember my goddaughter years ago when she was about eight saying to me where are the good women of the bible and i knew what she was saying that we grew up you know she was going along to sunday school and you were told all the stories of david and abraham and joseph and jonah and moses and where are the women of the bible just so you know, with all of those examples I've just given you, you can hardly call most of them good men of the Bible. You call them highly flawed men of the Bible that God still used because that's all he's ever had is flawed human beings. And you look at their stories and it took me ages to unpick that in my theology that I would always go, God, am I meant to endorse this behavior? Like this is gross or this is really, you know, wrong. And then I realized, oh no, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that I have to say that everything they did was good. I'm saying that we see in the bible that everything god does is good and most of what human beings does is flawed at best and into that story we see some flawed females doing some brilliant things and i don't have time to do all of it now i really don't so i'm just going to point out to you a couple of examples miriam miriam who was moses sister and we we obviously moses was the the top um leader in that scenario and yet uh, she is referred to at other places of the bible as being a leader that god sent to them so look up miriam look up holder the prophetess and we think nothing of uh, prophets now because anybody can hear god like every single one of us as god's children our birthright is to hear his voice but in the old testament the holy spirit was not poured out on all flesh the Holy Spirit was given at particular times to anoint particular people for particular works. So namely kings, they were the Holy Spirit would uh, often come on them, but also prophetesses, uh, prophets and prophetesses, the Holy Spirit would come on them and they would be able to prophesy. Now, the thing is, is what we don't uh, kind of get our heads around 
in, in our culture where we can all hear God speaking is that if you're in a culture where nobody can hear the voice of God except the anointed one or two, then automatically that gives them a, a leadership role because people seek them out. And that's what we see happening with Holder the Prophetess. Like I said, I haven't got time. And then also the best example in the Old Testament is Deborah, who was a judge. You read about her in the book of Judges. And what is amazing is the word judge is slightly lost on us because although we see that as an authoritative role in the courtroom, a, a judge in the Old Testament was pre any of the kings and it was the ruler of Israel. There was no one higher. And what's interesting is um, Deborah was married. And so you, we have to assume that she was the leader of her husband as well, seeing as he was part of Israel. There was no like little place for him to go and be where he was like, la, 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 I can't hear your leadership because I'm married to you. She was the leader appointed by God. The book of Judges makes it very clear that God raised up those leaders. It wasn't something that was handed down through generations like a monarchy, um, but it was God appointed leadership. Um, and I, again, I'm not going to do, I'm going to resist the temptation. But there are people that say that uh, God chose Deborah because there was no one else. Well, um, that's a load of rubbish and we don't find it in the Bible. So now we're going to fast forward to the New Testament. And this is where it gets good again, but it's all good. But Jesus, completely radical in everything he did. Absolutely. You know, everything he did was deliberate. So whenever you come across Jesus doing or saying anything, just know that he is not like, oh, gosh, that took me by surprise on a Monday morning. He did everything with um, uh, with deliberate thought. He wasn't passive and he wasn't neutral. And then just look at the way that he treats women. When he comes into a patriarchal society where women have um, low value and who are generally seen as, you know, they're the ones that either run a household or, or just have babies and, um, and are treated harshly. And Jesus comes into this and we just look at the way that he treated women. He honors them. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. One of them is at Simon the Pharisee's house where the woman is weeping over Jesus' feet, which was really awkward. But when people are muttering about her, he just says to them, look at her. It's a really simple thing, but he says, look at her, like, notice her, focus on her, don't talk about her, but actually look at her. He brings the woman center stage. Then you've got the story of Mary, um, as in Mary and Martha, Mary uh, learning from the feet of Jesus. And um, she sat in a position where she was, you know, we often look at that as like a woman that chose a quiet time. You know, when he says, uh, Martha, Martha, you were worried and upset about many things, but Mary has, uh, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better way. And the thing that she had chosen was not like this lovely quiet time with him, but she had chosen to sit at his feet. Again, that is lost on us in our culture, but sitting at the feet of a rabbi was the posture of a disciple. And was usually only reserved for men, only male rabbis. They, there was only male rabbis and they only had male disciples. And what he's saying to Martha when she's complaining that Mary is not in the kitchen and is not helping with the hospitality, which was so valued and um, in that culture, such an important role. But he's saying, I'm not going to tell her to get back in the kitchen when she has chosen to sit at my feet and learn from me. That was the whole reason why disciples sat at the feet of the, the rabbi was to learn from them. 
Why did the disciples sit and learn at the feet of the rabbi so that they would one day do the same? It wasn't like an online university course in some random subject of like, oh, I just fancy getting another degree on top of my degree. A, a disciple sat at the feet of the a rabbi in order that they would one day be the rabbi and teach their own disciples. And so this was a radical posture that Mary took on knowing that she could and Jesus endorses it. He doesn't send her away, but he's like, no, this is a good thing. She's learning from me. You've got the woman at the well who Jesus has this amazing interaction with and gives her the honor of becoming the first evangelist when he says, go and bring back your village. And she goes in and says, come and see this man who told me everything I'd ever done. She is the first where he reveals himself and then he, she, he gives her the job of inviting other people into that knowledge. And then you've got the resurrection, who is the person that Jesus first appeared to when he rose from the dead. It was a woman. It was Mary, again, in a culture where women's voices were not acceptable in a court of law as a witness. And here you've got the most important moment in the whole of history. And Jesus calls Mary to bear witness to this event. And he gives her the job of going and telling the male disciples, go and tell them that you've seen me. And so we see just Jesus acting radically around women, women in the way that he honoured them, in the way that he allowed them to learn, in the, in the roles of authority he gave them in terms of um, being evangelists and witnesses. But people then often come back and say, well, then why did Jesus only have 12 disciples? If he was going to come, 12 male disciples, sorry. If he was going to come and be so radical, why did he um, not bring a woman into that? And as I said at the beginning of talking about Jesus, everything Jesus did and said was deliberate. And when Jesus chose 12 disciples, he was actively saying a new thing is happening. So the whole of Israel's history had been based upon the 12 tribes of Abraham. And this was the picture language they'd had from the very get go. We belong to this family. This family is divided up in these 12 tribes. That was how they saw their identity. And so when Jesus came and chose 12 uh, disciples, he was saying, I'm doing a new thing now. So we have old covenant and new covenant. And he was enacting that. And if he had chosen 12, um, he had to choose 12 men because that mirrored the 12 sons that made up these 12 tribes. Now, when jo Jesus chose these 12 men, they were all uh, Israelite men. Because, again, he was reenacting something. He was waving a flag to the new thing that was coming. And so he didn't have any Romans in that. He didn't have any Greeks in that. And yet we know that he came for Romans and Greeks. Like we read that in the in the rest of the New Testament. So but he, he was making sure that his analogy was not going was not going to be lost on any of them. And so this is why. Yeah, that's the main reason. I think there's another reason, too, though, is that if he had chosen uh, a woman disciple, it could well have meant that he would have been um, really not listened to you know it would have been so shocking and so that thing with Jesus and isn't that the way that Jesus deals with us in our lives it's like pushing the boundaries <laughs> correcting us changing us but at a level that we can work with you know anyway 
I said earlier about this whole thing about Holder the prophetess, that at that time the Holy Spirit was not poured out on all flesh. But what had happened is in the book of Joel, there had been a prophecy that a time would be coming where that would, would change. And in the book of Acts, we see that moment when the Holy Spirit is sent. And in Acts chapter two, they refer to this uh, prophecy. Uh, this is in verse 16 and 18. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I love that that was foretold in, in uh, the Old Testament. And then here in the book of Acts, then it's this moment where the Holy Spirit is not like just for the few men that were raised up by God, but on all flesh, men and women. And Paul unpacks this further in the book of Galatians. So in Galatians 3, 28, Paul says this incredible statement. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this was revolutionary because at the time, everyone saw themselves as in their little camps, just as so often we do now. And so it's like, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? Slave free. There's this comparison. And what he's saying is now there's no more Jew nor Gentile. Now, what he's not saying is that race doesn't exist. That would be nonsense. But what he's saying is no race is better than the other. You can't be doing that. That's what happens in the world. But in the church of Jesus, race is not to be a dividing factor then he says in the church of jesus slave or free that social status those who have and those who have not that is not allowed in the church of jesus and we know that people still did have slaves at that time so it's not that they, that was immediately abolished but what he's saying is where you find yourselves in the church ordinarily one of you might sit on one side and one on the other no you're one in Christ Jesus. And in the same way, he says, this division between male and female, whatever is happening outside the church, the, the church of Jesus has to look different when it comes to race, when it comes to social status, and when it comes to sexism, the church of Christ has to look different. And I think that's a pretty good uh, statement and command and calling and blessing for us today. Romans 16, okay, written by Paul. Paul, who sometimes people think, oh, he didn't like women because other times he said certain things. And right at the very end of Romans 16, he has a few things that he wants to say. And he says this, I commend to you as sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Centrea, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she might need for you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So he's going to talk about three women. And there's first of all is Phoebe. And the way that he talks about Phoebe there suggests that she was probably the one that took the letter on his behalf to the Roman church and not like a postwoman, um, but actually she was therefore representing him. And that's why he says, you know, anything she needs, you need to give it to her. In other words, show her some respect. She's come on my behalf. And then he goes on and says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, 
they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So we've got this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. It would have been customary at that time to always mention the man first, just always, Aquila and Priscilla. And so the fact that Paul more commonly refers to them that way around says that she was the one of greater prominence than her husband. We, we miss that because, again, do you remember I said at the beginning, culture, language, it all matters. But we miss that that name, uh, the order of the name really matters. And um, she is mentioned ahead of him in other times as well. So in the book of Acts, uh, there's this moment where there's a leader in the church, a guy called Apollos, who is doing okay but some of his theology is a bit dodgy and it says that Priscilla and Aquila took him to one side and they redressed that issue they told him where he'd been going wrong and they sent him on his way and so we see there Priscilla uh, leading the way in correcting the theology of a leader who was in the church and so and I'm doing this really fast but we see that Priscilla and Aquila were Paul's co-workers what was Paul in the business of doing he was in the business of taking the gospel to new places, preaching the gospel, planting churches, establishing leaders, raising up leaders, pastoring leaders, teaching the church, moving on and doing it all again and then keeping up those relationships. And in all of those things, he's saying, Priscilla is my co-worker. She is at this business with me. And then he goes on in verse seven and says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and where they were in Christ before I was. And really briefly, Junior, amazing, this woman here that is listed as being outstanding among the apostles. Again, the work of the apostle was to be sent by the church to preach the good news, to establish new churches, raise up leaders, etc, etc, etc. And he's saying, here is this woman who is uh, the apostle of apostles, you know, she is way up there. I have done that really quickly, but I want you to see them and hold them in your minds that when people say, oh, but women shouldn't, it's like, what do we do with Priscilla then? What do we do with Junior, who were leaders of leaders? And we need to be encouraged by their presence in, in the New Testament and also challenged because they took on the role of leadership in a culture where women wouldn't have done that. They took on a culture and that would they took on leadership that would have required them pushing past their comfort zone. It would have had to have done. There is no way that when a woman's place at that time was, you know, to, to raise a family and unless you were very, very wealthy, you were not educated. Um, and, you know, but they they uh, they took on this role. And I think that must must have taken courage. It must have taken being filled with the Holy Spirit. It must have probably taken a fair amount of encouragement from other people, but they did it. They did it. And that to me continues to challenge me in my leadership. Am I leading uh, to the fullness that God has called me to lead or am I often happy to play it a little bit safe? And now in the last five minutes, I'm, we're going to do a tricky one because I know what happens is we can look at all of this and say this is good, but still there is an uncertainty and we can't do all the tricky passages. We can literally do this one. 
what we need to do is do some work you know the bible isn't always straightforward because it was written thousands of years ago in another culture at another time remember raining cats and dogs remember even that we don't even understand um you know naturally as we pick up our bible unless we dig into it what that context is to be able to expose the odd phrases like raining cats and dogs and so we're going to look at this one passage in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so first of all, if you're looking at it in your Bible, 1 Timothy 2, the heading that has been put in there is instructions on worship. And I want you to hold that because that's really helpful to know that this is not a subject on, this is not a particular passage on leadership. This is about worship. And Paul is really keen on this throughout his letters on what is appropriate in in our in our public worship how is that perceived by people that don't understand this new church when they're coming at this from their own ideas about worship either from the jewish synagogue or from the pagan temples where there were literally female prostitutes at the temple steps you know so other people are bringing in their ideas about worship. And so guys, how you behave in public worship really matters, right? That's the context and context matters. This is not a, uh, a paragraph about leadership, but about worship. And he says this, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, the first thing this should tell you is there is a context here. This is a letter. And so he's responding to issues that we can't see. And so he's saying, hey, guys, when you get together, hands in the air, not in each other's faces. And remember, this is about worship. Um, but just hold this for a minute. When you're in church on Sunday, do you see every single man in the building holding their hands up when they pray? Not all the time, not every time. And we accept that that's OK. So already we should be start to saying, hold on. Things are not as black and white as sometimes people tell us, because here it says in black and white, every man, when he holds up his hand, when he sorry, when he prays, he must have his hands in the air. But we don't do that. So. We, at some point, other people must be comfortable with context. And then he says this, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Again, remember here we're talking about worship. Remember that women in the church had way more freedom than the women in the culture generally. And so there is a thinking that maybe that sometimes these women took that newfound freedom and ran with it. And that maybe sometimes the way that they were behaving in worship was a little bit, you know, they say the pendulum always swings the other extreme, you know, that whether they took their freedom and they were acting a little bit OTT in that. Remember also that where other um, pagan religions had uh, temple prostitutes, who showed that they were prostitutes in the way that they dressed, um, that he's saying, guys, just be careful in what you're doing. And also remember in that bit we just read in Galatians, where it was talking about neither, you know, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, like the when social status is not meant to be a thing in the church. So if you've got enough money that you can dress in gold or pearls, hey, be careful. Worship is about unity. Worship is about us coming together. 
and remember women that what really matters the beauty that is on display is what god has done in your heart not in what you can do on the outside so all of this is in the mix here and then we get onto the really tricky one women should learn in quietness and full submission I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over the man. She must be quiet. Here's the really tricky bit. First thing to say is the emphasis in this passage that we don't see in our English Bibles is this word should. A woman should learn. I want the women to learn. Women were not educated in that society, as I've said. But here Paul is saying, women, you, you, I want you to learn. I want you to learn, but how do you do it? I want you to learn in quietness and full submission. Do you know that is the only way any of us learn? The only way you've been able to take on board anything I've said today is by being quiet. And even if you don't agree with everything I'm saying, you have to be in this moment submitted to me as a teacher just while you take it on board. That is the only way to learn. And then he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Now, this is really tricky. And particularly because that word assume authority, that phrase is not found anywhere else uh, in the New Testament or in any other ancient writing. And the, what it seems to be saying is a little bit similar to what we talked about with Cain and sin and dominance. It's, I do not permit a woman to seize authority, to dominate, to take a position that isn't hers. And instead, she must be quiet. Now, remember again, what do we see? We see Paul raising up women and highlighting women who were leading. So either Paul is schizophrenic or there's something else going on here. And what is important, I think, in this passage, remember, again, we're talking about worship, we're not talking about teaching and leadership anyway, but he's saying there is a way to come into the house of God. And women, you need to be quiet while you're learning, but you learn for a purpose, just as Mary did at the feet of Jesus. So get up to speed, women, is kind of what he's saying here. And then he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, the tricky thing about this is other places in Paul's writing, he flips that argument on its head and talks about um, Eve being the one, uh, sorry, Adam being the one that was formed, that was created first. And what he's doing is he's using different arguments, like a different angle on the same event in order to highlight something here. And so what he could be saying is, look, Adam was formed first. And Eve didn't learn about the, um, the fact that the fruit was prohibited. And look where that got her. And instead, like, so it's all linked to this. Women should learn and you learn for a purpose. Now, I'm not saying that's 100% sure what he's saying. But what I'm saying is there should be enough to leave us with a question mark. Again, because we see him raising up women at other times. And then... Women, it finishes verse 15 by saying this, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. The reason why that last bit is really important is because it doesn't make any sense. No one has been able to make sense of it. Different people have different, conject, you know, conjectured ideas. What we know it can't mean is that women are saved through childbirth. <laughs> It can't mean that, even though it says women will be saved through childbearing. It can't mean that because it definitely doesn't mean that those of us with kids are saved and the rest of you aren't. You know, apart from anything else, what about the people that never have children? 
so it cannot mean that the whole of the new testament tells us that we are saved through jesus that is the way so it could be an idea that he's saying women all women are saved through the childbearing through what mary did in giving birth it could be a reaction to uh, the fact that as women had this new freedom and they were no longer bound to the home and the, only the role of motherhood, that he's saying, hey, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's another funny phrase. Um, don't, but actually remember, there is still value in childbearing. We don't know what it means. No one's been ever been able to agree. But when people say it's very clear, Paul was very clear, women are to be quiet in the church and they are not to teach. You say, really, he was really clear. So then why are you not holding up your hands every time you pray? And what do we tell the person that's infertile about whether or not they're going to heaven? Anyway, what I hope that has shown you is that context matters, that Paul is either schizophrenic or there's something else going on, that actually, even in reading that one little passage, we understand that there must be another level because of some of the things that we still don't quite know what to do with. Also, the fact that the whole passage was about worship, not leadership. So people are happy taking things out of context when it suits, but not otherwise. I've got a stand in the calling that is on my life. And um, there's this brilliant bit in uh, Psalms, I can't remember where, but it talks about like he lifted me out of the mud and the mire and he gave me a firm place to stand. And that was a word that God gave me really clearly a few years ago. Of, Ali, I have placed you as a leader. Now, wherever I place you, stand. And it's shorthand from his heart to mine that says, if you're in the room, be in the room. And so I sometimes even like making myself use my voice, even if I feel like, and I work for some really talented men, really gifted leaders. And so my temptation is often just let them do the talking. But so often God says to me, Ali, I've put you in the room as well. And I've so often found that when I've used my voice, it has opened up a whole other thing that they couldn't have opened up. Anyway, so I arm myself with my theology. I have my great friends who support me and I remind myself before the Lord of the calling on my life.